Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by my old friend Stuart Kelly, a former literary editor of Scotland on Sunday and the author of several books, of which the latest is called The Minister and the Murderer, a book of aftermaths, which is a sort of it's a very unusual sort of book. It's a mixture of a, a sort of true crime story, a bit of a history of the Church of Scotland, a sort of glancing and slant autobiography or spiritual autobiography, and a discussion of theology and literature. It's a very peculiar and interesting mix. And at its centre is a character called John Nelson, who, having been convicted of a murder to which he confessed on leaving prison, went and became a minister of the Church of Scotland. Stuart, could you tell us a bit about John Nelson? Well, Nelson is a figure who's intrigued me for many, many years. He was the first ever self-confessed convicted murderer to become a man of the cloth. Of course, there have been other people who have taken a human life who have been in the church, but this was the first time it was somebody who had confessed to it. He never apologised for it. It was not a kind of mea culpa, mea culpa, I'm the worst of sinners situation. He committed this atrocious, horrible murder, gave himself up to the police. This wasn't all that long ago, was it, we should make clear? This isn't a kind of 19th century story. No, no, it was 1969 that the murder happened. He was sentenced to life imprisonment. He served 10 years before he got parole, then went to St Andrews University and studied theology, where it was kept quite quiet about what his background was. Some of the other students realised there was something a bit odd about him. Then he applied to actually become a minister, not just to go to the local church and ask for forgiveness for his sins, but to actually be the leader of the flock. His local parish, his local presbytery, basically declined his request. So he took it to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, which is the highest spiritual and legal court of the church. And the church then had to have this very big, very intense debate about, well, is he forgiven? Can he be forgiven? Even if we think he is forgiven, can he be leading a parish? And eventually he did become a parish minister and served there until 2005. One of the things I guess you should make clear for readers who aren't you know, familiar with the Church of Scotland is this was a very sort of special case in that the Church of Scotland isn't set up in the same way as, say, the Church of England or the Catholic Church, where there's a very strict hierarchy, is it? No. I mean, the Church of Scotland is, in some ways, I think, a very democratic church. Ever since Knox's Book of Discipline, there's always been this ruling that it's the parish itself that decides. And then from parish, you go to presbytery. From presbytery, you eventually go to assembly. And every year, there's a different moderator for the assembly. So it's not like being Pope. It's not like being Archbishop of Canterbury. So every year, there's a different person. And every year at the assembly... Half the people there are ministers and half the people are from the laity. And they had to wrestle with this huge question. Could a man who had committed a a heinous crime be elected to become a minister? Even then, it was more complicated because even if he went through the process whereby he would be allowed to be asked to be a minister, somebody had to ask him. Yes, many are called, as you write, but few are chosen. (laughs) Many are called, but few are chosen. And he was chosen. And one thing which I found most moving in looking at the story, which is kind of keyhole into the whole of the Church of Scotland and the whole of the theological issues that obsessed me, was there was an incident on the 10th anniversary of him becoming a minister where the whole story was raked up again. 
and the number of people from his parish who wrote really moving letters to the newspaper saying, he's a good man, we like him as a minister. You know, it was very much a, a democratic form. And he died in 2005. Some people I spoke to had exceptionally fond memories of him. Some people thought he had always pulled the wool over the church's eyes. Why do you think, because it, it seems sort of counterintuitive, why do you think the General Assembly actually voted to allow him to be ordained or whatever the equivalent would be? That's a very interesting and difficult question, Sam. I would say that because the Church of Scotland is quite precise about this, the only person that forgives is God. You know, we can forgive each other, but it's a Calvinist church. The only person who's really got the reckonings is God. The Church of Scotland could not say that he was not forgiven. So it's a kind of double negative. At the same time, the argument that was put forward was, well, you know, he may be forgiven, he may not be forgiven in the eternal scheme of things. But why should he be a minister? So it's a sort of standard middle management manoeuvre. If you've got a difficult problem, you refer it upstairs. <laughs> well, very much you refer it upstairs. But the question was, could he actually be allowed to be a minister regardless? I mean, when I go to church, I don't know if the people round about me have committed sins, committed crimes, whether they're going to be redeemed, whether they're going to be in perdition or some other form of supernatural, let's just say, not being quite as close as one might hope to be. Nobody knows these things in the church, the universal church, not just the Church of Scotland. The question was, should he be allowed to be somebody who was leading a parish? And the Reverend James White, who later goes on to become the moderator of the church and who has an exceptional career, I mean, he has to deal with some very difficult things, including the Lockerbie disaster. He preaches a sermon after the Dunblane killings. He has to be the moderator when Margaret Thatcher turns up to give what was referred to as the Sermon on the Mound. The Mound is where the General Assembly building is. You know, he was a very, very important figure in the history of the church in Scotland. And he argued the whole time, if we say he can't be a minister, we're basically saying that you forgive the prodigal son, but only his older brother is allowed to be an actual leader of faith. And of course, the strange thing is, when you look over the history of the Bible, when you look at the actual stories, I'm sure if you said to the man on the number 23 bus in Edinburgh, should somebody who's killed somebody be allowed to be a minister? They kind of say, well, hang on, there's a commandment about that, isn't there? And yet, yeah, when you go through the history of the Bible, everyone from Moses to David to Samson to, well, St. Paul's an accessory to murder, St. Peter's an attempted murderer. Actually, he does kill people, but with a kind of magic bit. I try to take out all the ones where it was just kind of magical killing and, you know, concentrate on the who's actually got a sword at the time. It looks less and less like it's a prohibition on becoming a church figure. Sometimes it almost looks like it's the requirement. Well, there's a lot of smiting in there. There's a lot of smiting. You you do actually, I mean, on that sort of smiting front, I mean, that's the term we, we use. You're very precise, and I've, I've had fascinating on this question of, you know, everyone gets, well, thou shalt not kill. That's one of the big, obvious you know, number one commandments. But the Hebrew yes. in that, you, you make a point about what kill actually can mean in that circumstance. Can you unpack that a little? Sure, sure. Yes, it's a very, very odd thing that the word which is used in the commandment is not a word used previously in the Bible. And there's been a fair amount of killing thus far. I always find it intriguing that if you say to most people, when do you think God says, if you kill a man, 
if you shed a man's blood by a man, your blood will be shed. It's not after Cain and Abel. It's after God has just basically committed the biggest genocide in history with the flood. So he's left Noah and his family and that's it. There's something very ironic there. It's a word which means in some ways unlawful killing. Because when you look through Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, there is a lot of verses, a great many verses, which talk about when you can judicially kill somebody for all numbers of reasons, which the new atheists have great fun. Sort of picking do. up sticks on Sunday. So. <laughs> picking up sticks on Sunday, wearing two different kinds of fabrics, all the sort of strange sexual rules. But, you know, you can tweet people as much as you like about the fact that these are strange, archaic rules. The word for killing is a different kind of word. It's a word which I feel means unlawfully take away a life. Obviously, the way we define what murder is changes. We have many different definitions of murder, whether it's manslaughter, whether it's accidental death. Even recently, I was looking at cases of causing death by dangerous driving and why that is not the same as a murder. I mean, it's got the same end result. It's what Bernard Williams referred to as moral luck. You know, the person who drinks five pints, drives home and doesn't knock somebody down, how are they different from the person who drinks five pints, drives home and does knock somebody down? In terms of the sort of moral luck and culpability and lawfulness or otherwise of his killing, I mean, what we haven't mentioned is that murder he committed was, was of a sort that people do find especially abhorrent. I mean, he was a matricide, wasn't he? Yes. I mean, there is something so morally repugnant about matricide. To take away the life of the person that gave you life seems almost incomprehensible. And one thing that I find very strange is that there are no matricides in the Bible. The Bible has got a great many crimes, some of them rather baroque and disgusting, but matricide is never one of them. Matricides are actually rather rare. There isn't a single Agatha Christie novel that features a matricide. Ordeal by innocence is something close, but apart from that, no. So the whole question about matricide, a crime which seems so against every part of our human nature, makes us even more bizarre as a case. And actually, when it is a case which is hard, when it is something in which there is a certain degree of revulsion, I think that made it even more fascinating that the church had to interrogate itself at such a high level. The book is, as well as being about Nelson and his, you know, his ordination and the, what followed, it is a very personal book. What is it that drew you to Nelson as a kind of character? Because you know, you put a lot in about yourself. I mean, there's one point at which you say quite near the end, you say, you know, he was better than me. You yes. contrast your own lack of a vocation to his successful vocation. And, you know, it's, yes. it's not quite a competitive book, but it's a book in which you're considering him in relation to yourself. I felt very strongly that, in a way, the book is an anti-biography. That's the word I've kind of come up with to describe it. Because by the end, I don't know what I think of, of James Nelson. I don't know if he was a very clever fake or whether he was somebody who was a genuine inspiration in terms of conversion. The person I do know best is myself and the only person I feel I have the right to judge is myself. And I grew up in a church-going family. I drifted away from faith. I've gone back to faith. It's a flickering, difficult faith. I always like the phrase practicing Christian and my usual retort is, and one day I hope to be good at it. So it felt to me that it would be dishonest intellectually and morally to write the book without bringing in my own struggles with faith. And in a way, 
if there's a kind of blessing in the book, the blessing is that having thought about him and what he went through, who could bear that on one's conscience? Who could bear trying to become a better person? Clarified for me certain things about what I wanted from religious practice, even if it is intermittent and, as I say, quite flickering. You say you have the right to judge yourself. You judge yourself very harshly in this book. I mean, you describe yourself as a child as being a, a, a pious little shit. And well, I was. When, when you have a teenage atheist period, you're a buffoon of the first water. I mean, there's a lot of self-reproach in this book, and some of it seems to be bound up also, you know, retrospectively with the breakup of your marriage. I mean, do you think that's inflected the tone of the book strongly? Yes, I did think that if I was going to judge, I had to judge as harshly as possible of myself more than anyone else. And I hope that in the end, I don't judge Nelson. And I hope I don't judge anyone else in the book. But it was important to me that I had to be not the worst of sinners. That's Paul's line. But to be very open about the fact that I often feel that I've let myself down. I often feel that I could have done better. I often feel that I've been parsimonious in grace. I often feel that various, even reviews that I've done in the past, I kind of look back on now and think, you are being deliberately provocative there. I think so all literary said, journalists have that. They look back and go, oh, God, I shouldn't have been so mean. I was showing off rather than... Yes, and, and, and sometimes I look back and think, yes, you had that spot on. That person did deserve a kick. But it was important to me that the book would be extremely critical of myself, because unless I'm critical of myself and honest about that, then there is no way that I could even hazard a judgment on any of the other people in the book. There are a couple of personal details that I find extraordinary. I mean, there's one of them that you were nearly struck by lightning once. You seem to regret you weren't actually oh, yes. struck by lightning. <laughs> yes, did that so happen? It was a couple of years ago. I was walking home and I remember seeing the lightning flashing round, walking down this country village lane. And it struck basically about 20 metres or so ahead of me. It was absolutely beautiful. At the time, I was slightly blinded. I kind of held onto the hedge and edged my way back up to the cottage. Afterwards, you know, having seen this incredible light, I really wish it had hit me. You know, it's not something you get to experience more than once. I mean, obviously, I didn't particularly want to go into cardiac arrest at that point. But seeing that, seeing that moment to just sheer power that it does, it's astonishing. There's also another kind of your, your solitary journeys to your country cottage from the bus stop, obviously kind of pretty eventful. There's one very extraordinary, rather chilling chapter in which you describe getting a very familiar feeling of being stalked by something. And it's a kind of numinous sense of evil, I guess. You'd... Yes, yes. It was just at the point where I started going back to church regularly. And, you know, I was still finding it difficult. I was still sitting through the sermons, treating them like a literary critic, thinking, do I really believe that? Is that true? How does that fit with that verse? But I'd come back from Edinburgh. It was fairly early on, but in Scotland, it gets dark fairly quickly. And just had this sense of something profoundly wicked out there. And once I thought about it later and spoke to a few of my friends who are ministers, one of the things they said was, people talk about lighting a candle. And, you know, you shine out in the darkness. Well, when you light a candle, you also alert darkness to the fact that you're there. And I genuinely believe that that was a, an encounter with something inhumanly wicked that was out there. 
But it is contrasted with the fact that having a dream when I was a student, where I genuinely believed for the time it took between having the dream and waking up, that I understood everything and that I could be a completely good, decent Christian and it would all make sense somehow. The meeting with the devil has to be contrasted with that tiny chink of thinking, yes, I do understand what faith is. I do understand what it means. But whenever I think about faith, the thing that I keep on coming back to, the thing that I keep on circling around is I don't have a proof for God. Not even Thomas Aquinas did. I've got various kind of arguments I would put forward. But what means most to me is that I like myself more now that I'm in the church. I feel it makes me a better person. I think that's the thing that I try to cleave to. Obviously, a very ambiguous word, cleave, meaning to both separate and to unite. But it's that sense of, if I'm going to be better, this is a thing that I can use to help me become better. That's quite a sort of pragmatic day-to-day argument for faith, or at least for the practice of faith. And yet you've got these sort of, you know, it seems to stand in contrast to these eruptions of the numinous, of the very a dream of revelation, an encounter. I mean, you're a Scottish literary critic, so there's obviously, a, you know, somewhere in the background, there's Tam O'Shanter, you know, being chased by the devil. Well, or, or James Hogg, the Confessions of a Justified Exactly, Sinner. or Hogg, yes. Yes. Yes, there is, a, there is a difference between the kind of practicalities of each day trying to be better than I was the day before, and a sense that there is something that the universe cannot be explained purely in terms of random collisions of atoms. That there are, I think, and I, I do believe this now, there are interventions. The idea that the world is purely explicable in materialist terms, I do not believe. And I don't believe that either intellectually or emotionally. There is a lot of intellectual work in the book as well, though. You talk about being a literary critic and about actually your approach to your subject, your approach to Nelson, your, is that of a literary critic? You, I mean, you said the Bible, actually temporarily turned you off religion. You've got a sort of interesting idea about the Bible. He said, you know, everybody knows the Bible in these bits, like a kind of William Burroughs, Brian Geisen, cut up and fold in technique. Indeed, indeed. And I think that's very, very curious. I've tried over the past few years to read the books of the Bible as if they were the books I read for my work. You know, not to sit down and say, oh, well, this week we're doing this bit of Isaiah or this bit of Ephesians, but to read the whole thing as a whole. And I think that gives you a very different perspective. And yes, I mean, obviously I talk about Eastcliff's Oristaya and Golden Age crime novels and quite a lot of cultural stuff in the book. But Yes, I like that you, you at one point rope in Hugh Everett's multiple universe theory yes. and a Borges story and then a 1961 <laughs> Flash comic. <laughs> yes. You know, one is allowed a few pirouettes, I think. <laughs> but, you know... I've been made of books. They are my second life. And to sort of ask me to do a book which wasn't somehow suffused with literature is a bit like saying to Ian Rankin, great book, Ian, but can you not have as many murders in it? You know, (laughs) it's just the stuff I'm made of. (laughs) To get back briefly to Nelson, what happened to him after he became a minister? Because that's not the end of the story, is it? I mean, you know, you have as your your subtitle, A Book of Aftermaths. What's the aftermath of his his becoming a minister? the, the aftermath is various. First of all, and it's a strange point to have to make, being a minister is often very boring. It's not always sitting wrestling with the great issues of faith or trying to come up with new interpretations of Corinthians. It's the day-to-day things of 
people being born, people getting married, people dying, people taking their first communion. And also the even more bizarre small things like, you know, do we have a raffle at the church fete? Who's going to paint the man's door? So part of me was interested in boredom in a way that, you know, the life he had afterwards was not a kind of grand drama. He did leave his wife and remarry. There was a time in the Church of Scotland where this would have been, well, even today, you can often see that if a minister's marriage breaks down, there is a, a huge amount of sort of whispering and scandal and all the rest of it. So, you know, there was that, but that's something that can happen to anyone. You don't need to be wearing a dog collar to be protected against that. Now, both his, both his ex-wife and his widow are still alive. I mean, was this a sort of, you approached the ex-wife, but not the widow? I mean, as a journalist, I'd have thought, thought you'd, have, you'd have wanted to be right in there. Was that a sort of moral scruple? I thought that she deserved her privacy. It can't have been easy. So it was a moral scruple. It was like the fact that I thought at one point I would go and visit the house where the murder happened and try and speak to people who lived there. And then just thought, actually, they probably don't know what happened there. And I don't think I've got the right to rock up in some place in the central belt of Scotland and say, could I see your uh, living room? Because, you know, somebody got their head battered in there. That just struck me as being something that was not more defensible. So, yes, I mean, a, a lot of the bits at the end of the book are about privacy, are about quietness. Nelson did have a public profile to an extent. He appeared on Channel 4's After Dark programme. And it's quite interesting. It's something I hadn't quite pulled together in my head that he does this in the year when James White, his great defender, has become moderator of the church. And it's almost like the, I mean, the divorce and the appearance on the television programme are roughly the same period when White is de facto the head of the church. And it's almost like he feels he's able to do things as long as this great protector is in charge. But, you know, the end of his life was very sad. He died much, well, he died young, not particularly young for Scotland, it has to be said. And, you know, I'm sure there'd be some people that would say, well, you know, it wasn't soon enough. And I'm sure there's some people that would say, well, you know, who knows what he would have made of the other 10 years he would have had under his biblically allotted sum. You don't actually go into very much detail about this transition. The, the second wife sort of appears in the story. I mean, do you know what actually happened there? I mean, did he break number seven as well? I don't know. And I don't need to know. And even if I did know, that wouldn't let me understand him. I think there's a very great problem in terms of thinking, well, you know, if only I knew this, if only I knew that, then it would all make sense. I dislike this idea intensely of the biographer as a kind of god who's sitting there with a pair of scales and saying, well, on this side we've got this, on this side we've got that. On balance, we're going to say that this person was a good person or a bad person, a fraud or somebody sincere. I knew that I wouldn't understand anything for it. And in a way, I wanted the book to have at least one ghost in it, one wisp that you can pin down. I do mention that I, 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 when I was thinking, should I try and contact her, discovered that there was a project a few years ago whereby everyone was asked to write, handwrite one line in a Bible. So it was a big handwritten Bible and saw that she was in there. And I thought, in a way, that's enough for me. I don't know what's the situation now, whether she's alive or dead or happy or sad. And in a way, I don't think that knowing that would make me understand either Nelson or myself any better. And more unknown aftermaths. Stuart Kelly, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you, Sam. 
And I'd like to make you aware of a brand new subscription offer we've got going for anyone who admires the great writer Stephen Pinker. For just £12, you can subscribe to The Spectator for three months, receive a copy of Mr Pinker's new book, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism and Progress, and tickets to see him in discussion with me, Sam Leith, at a special Spectator event this February. 